Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, who shares his views on the danger of escalating rhetoric in Ukraine and the appearance of new divisions within the NATO alliance. Marge Baker of People for the American Way, who discusses the historic nature of President Biden's pledge to nominate a black woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. And Russell Chisholm, co-chair of the Protect Our Water Heritage and Rights Coalition, who talks about encouraging news recently received by opponents of the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline Project. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Weeks after the Biden administration pulled its forces out of Afghanistan, Samantha Power, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, had a conference call with aid contractors, saying the agency was halting humanitarian operations in the country after 20 years. Now it was up to the contractors who ran the programs to tell thousands of Afghan aid workers that their work was finished. The directive came in the midst of U.S. sanctions imposed against the new Taliban regime that included freezing $9 billion in assets and shutting down the banking system, provoking a currency crisis. These sanctions are now heavily criticized by humanitarian aid groups for blocking their ability to get money for assistance and aid workers into Afghanistan. The Intercept reports that U.S. aid contractors describe the agency as an unwieldy apparatus run by bureaucrats who are divorced from the reality on the ground. This winter, Afghanistan faces an epic humanitarian crisis with more than 8.7 million near famine and nearly 23 million people, or half the nation, facing severe hunger without a massive infusion of aid. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez says Afghanistan is hanging by a thread. Its people need over a billion dollars to survive the winter, and countries should authorize all transactions needed to carry out humanitarian aid. The Great Plains of the Dakotas offer some of the strongest and sustained winds in the nation to develop wind power. Yet it's also home to an entrenched political establishment loyal to the coal industry, even as it loses its competitive edge to renewable energy. Three years ago, the operators of Coal Creek Station, a 40-year-old coal-fired power plant located 50 miles north of Bismarck, North Dakota, lost $170 million and couldn't find a buyer for the aging plant. The utility had planned to give new wind turbines access to its electric lines as clean energy companies signed leases for wind power with local farmers. But the state's county governments have imposed moratoriums on new renewable energy projects, which are seen as a direct threat to jobs in rural communities in North Dakota's coal country. In January, Rainbow Energy Marketing, which had never run a coal plant before, won approval to operate Coal Creek Station. The company now has plans to run a data center for cryptocurrency mining and pledged to someday capture the plant's coal carbon emissions and store them underground. 
During former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's brief 2020 presidential campaign, he faced billboards in Iowa, which holds the first presidential primary caucus, asking him, what are you doing in Iowa? Go back to New York and talk with us. The signs were funded by wealthy Manhattanites opposed to a new homeless shelter that city planners had slated to be opened in the former Park Savoy Hotel on West 58th Street, which is known locally as Billionaire's Row. The area is home to some of the priciest real estate in the Big Apple. The shelter was part of the de Blasio administration's strategy to spread out homeless shelters across the city and create access to jobs. The wealthy West 58th Street coalition behind the Iowa billboards held up the project for four years in the courts. In May 2021, a state appellate judge rejected the lawsuit and the shelter opened last November. Former New York City Commissioner of Social Services Steve Banks called the fight over the West 58th Street shelter the longest and most well-funded litigation against a homeless shelter in New York City history. The Nation magazine reports the coalition paid $100,000 for the Iowa billboards and $287,000 for lobbyists. It's estimated that over 45,000 people live in New York City shelters, including 17,000 single adults and 15,000 children. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The threat of war looms over Ukraine, as Russia and the U.S. blame each other for the escalation of rhetoric and tensions. With more than 100,000 Russian troops in the region around its border, the Ukraine military and civilian volunteers have been conducting training exercises in front of TV cameras to prepare for possible invasion. But Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky recently told President Biden to calm down the messaging about the threat of a Russian invasion because, he said, it was stirring panic and could trigger economic chaos. Moscow has made several demands of NATO, including a halt to the Western military alliance's eastward expansion, a pledge that Ukraine will never become a NATO member state, and a reduction in the number of Western troops in Eastern European countries that were once part of the Soviet Union. U.S. and European officials have categorically rejected most of Moscow's demands. But while Russian President Vladimir Putin complains that the U.S. and NATO have ignored his top security demands, he maintains that Russia is still open for more dialogue in order to defuse tensions over Ukraine. Your reporter spoke with Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island and editor of the book Ukraine in Crisis. Here he shares his views on the dangerous situation in Ukraine and the appearance of new divisions within the NATO alliance. The thing I think that's important for your listeners to realize is that while the United States and Great Britain see a threat, uh, our Western European allies uh, are much uh, more cautious and the most interesting thing, maybe, is that Ukrainian officials uh, don't see that threat. 
uh, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, the head of national security, the head of the Border Patrol. The president uh, has been uh, on television a number of times explaining to their own people that there is no extraordinary activity on the other side of the border. And that's started to come across a little bit in the Western media as well. So I guess the question that we should be asking ourselves is why does the U.S. see a threat when the people closest to the potential threat uh, don't see it themselves? What do you think the answer to that question is? Why is the United States escalating its rhetoric? And we have President Biden at one point talking about an invasion from Russia into Ukraine as, quote-unquote, inevitable. I do have an, uh, an explanation as to why the U.S. sees a threat uh, that Ukrainian officials do not. And I happen to think it's because I think the U.S. is playing for larger stakes here than just Ukraine. Uh, remember, this is all against the backdrop of Russia making demands, security demands of NATO and raising the issue of the promises that were made to Russia in the early 1990s about not expanding eastward. This begins to ask again the question of what purpose does NATO serve in a post-Cold War world? And I think uh, what the United States uh, is responding to really is to preserve the status quo for NATO, I should say. Let's remember why NATO was created in the first place. It was created, as its first uh, Secretary General put it, to, quote, keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And that's pretty much uh, continued to be its mission, even after the Cold War ended. And so I think uh, that's what the United States wants to preserve, uh, because it allows it to keep a foothold in Europe. Uh, that's something that is problematic for Russia, because uh, it has resulted, that formulation, in Russia being permanently excluded from contributing to uh, European security and deriving the benefits of European security for itself. The problem that we now have, and this has been pointed out by Ukraine's president, is that this rhetoric of war is actually destabilizing Ukraine. President Zelensky of Ukraine has had to go on television twice to tell his population not to panic. And that's because investors are leaving the country. The national currency has devalued 10%. Uh, utilities and gasoline are skyrocketing. And the U.S., as you know, just added fuel to the fire by withdrawing the families of diplomatic personnel. This could go south very quickly for the United States because there are two long-term consequences of this kind of escalation for the United States. One is that it could exacerbate tensions within NATO. Already, the Germans and the French are trying to hew a different line from the United States and Great Britain. Uh, secondly, uh, there could be a backlash against uh, the United States and NATO in Ukraine itself, against the West generally. 
And that's because what something that a lot of people don't talk about. It's not just that Ukraine is choosing between East and West. There's a third option, and that's neutrality. And that's something that, you know, in this kind of uh, situation of perpetual conflict uh, becomes more and more attractive. That was Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island. Find a link to Professor Petro's recent commentary on Ukraine and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. With the retirement of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, President Biden will be nominating a new justice, one that he pledged during his 2020 election campaign will be a black woman. If confirmed by the U.S. Senate, Biden's nominee will be the first African-American woman to serve on the nation's highest court. Some of the reported frontrunners that could be selected by Biden include Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who was on former President Barack Obama's Supreme Court shortlist in 2016. California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, a former Deputy Solicitor General of the U.S., and Judge J. Michelle Childs of the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina, who's been championed by Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina and nominated for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Predictably, some Republican politicians and right-wing commentators have criticized Biden for his stated goal of selecting a highly qualified black woman to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court. This criticism from the right was notably absent when then-Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan and former President Donald Trump both pledged to select women nominees to fill future high court vacancies. Your reporter spoke with Marge Baker, executive vice president for policy and program with the group People for the American Way, who talks about the historic nature of President Biden's pledge to diversify the Supreme Court. We are on our way to confirming an an extraordinarily qualified black woman to serve as a justice of the Supreme Court, one who has a demonstrated commitment to civil and human rights and will really um, move the court in a historic direction. It it could not be more exciting. It is long overdue. And we're we're just really excited for what this could mean for the court, for justice, Um, not just now, but justice going forward for generations. Now, the pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court has triggered the racism and reflexive white supremacist worldview of some in the Republican Party. Right-wing Fox News commentators expressed disbelief that a well-qualified black woman jurist could be found. Really, despicably, we have Republican Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi very predictively diminishing any nominee Biden would pick as a product of affirmative action. I wonder if you talk about the response we see from Republicans and right-wing commentators. Of, of the 114 justices on the Supreme Court, 108 were white, were white men. Did anybody raise this issue when a white man was nominated? that somehow there was undue preference when, in fact, there was. <laughs> it's only now, in, in 2022, that we are seeing the nomination of a black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. When Amy Coney Barrett, who was the last Trump nominee to be confirmed in a very rapid, rapid pace, was nominated, 
Trump said that he was going to nominate a woman to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. You didn't hear Wicker, Senator Wicker out there you know, challenging that. It's just a, a bogus argument. Really, under, it's important to understand that that's out there. But the fact is that, as, as we were talking about, there is a deep pool of extraordinarily qualified, talented women who have a demonstrated commitment to protecting civil and human rights. And it's among that pool of women that President Biden is going to pick someone. I did want to ask you about uh, what we can expect during a nomination hearing in the U.S. Senate. Can we expect the Democrats to be united, given all the uh, the problems we've seen in the Build Back Better bill and the voting rights bill that that failed, both of them? And, of course, uh, is it also equally predictable that we're going to see Republicans in solid opposition, with maybe a few exceptions? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think we should, up until now, the Democratic caucus, members of the Democratic caucus have hung together on all of uh, Biden's lower federal court nominees. So I'm not sure I would expect anything different. Obviously, um, each one is going to make make their evaluation, but I think the past record suggests that the Democratic caucus will be there. And I don't think that we should assume that we can't get Republican votes. I should say I'm, I'm hopeful. Obviously, this nominee from President Biden if she succeeds here in the U.S. Senate, is not going to change the balance of the court. So as you look at the problem of the U.S. Supreme Court and its lopsided right-wing view, there's been discussion of the need to expand the court or to impose term limits on the justices Mm -hmm. so we have a more representative uh, Supreme Court. What's the importance of reforming the Supreme Court? I think that is important, but I, I think we have to <laughs> I think we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. The walking piece is we need this confirmation and we need this seat on the Supreme Court that is being vacated by Justice Breyer to be filled by a younger progressive woman and the fact that this will be the first black woman on the court is extremely important. And I think so part of that is we have to stop the bleeding. So we have to make sure that this seat is, is filled by a justice who really is committed and somebody who's de- demonstrated their, their commitment to civil and human rights and justice for all. So that's the first piece. Then then I think we, we, we have to understand that whether it is rebalancing the current court, which will take a long time, or court reform, which also will take a long time, we have to keep building to creating a court that, that is there for all of us, not just for the powerful, not just for the wealthy. And that means, frankly, one piece of that is making sure that we continue to turn out at the polls to make sure that we have a president who will nominate Um, such a nominee and a Senate that will confirm such a nominee going forward, because this is not going to be the first first vacancy. There's going to be more and more and more, and we have to set ourselves up to make sure that we are filling existing vacancies as they occur with um, individuals who have that demonstrated commitment to protecting the rights of all of us. And then we look at reform. And we at my organization has supported both um, the idea of term limits and also the idea of expanding the court. It's something to pursue. But I think we can't take our eyes off of the immediate battle for this, to fill this vacancy and other vacancies that occur as we're also striving for reform. That was Marge Baker, Executive Vice President for Policy and Program with the group People for the American Way. Learn more about the group's work to restore ideological balance and legitimacy to our nation's courts by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. 
www.ghostsofthecommons.org. The 303-mile Mountain Valley Pipeline is being built through the mountains of West Virginia and Virginia, with a possible later extension into North Carolina. If completed, the pipeline would carry frack gas to markets in the Mid- and South Atlantic regions of the U.S. The project has been passionately opposed by local groups, who've engaged in tree-sit protests along the route, or blocked the route directly with nonviolent civil disobedience, as well as through multiple lawsuits. Opponents say the project has already contaminated water, created landslides, and poses threats of both air pollution and negative climate impacts. Frack gas, which is almost all methane, is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Construction is well underway, but different state and federal agencies have denied key permits or withdrawn permits already granted. On January 25th, the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals vacated approvals by the U.S. Forest Service and Federal Bureau of Land Management for the pipeline to cross three and a half miles of the Jefferson National Forest in Virginia and West Virginia. Still, the project refuses to die, and the companies behind it, mainly Equitrans Midstream, say they expect it to be operational within the next two years, having been granted one two-year extension from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Russell Chisholm, co-chair of the Protect Our Water Heritage and Rights, or Power Coalition, and coordinator of Mountain Valley Watch, a group that monitors construction of the pipeline. Here he talks about the fight against the fossil fuel pipeline project and where the opposition campaign stands right now. They have certainly done um, a fair amount of damage Thinking about the court ruling, recent, most recent court ruling in, in the Fourth Circuit, where they've now been blocked from doing any additional work in the national forests, um, they did cut trees. They did clear and stage pipe in some areas of the national forest, particularly on Brush Mountain. It's, those are some of the ugliest scars. One of the measures that they sort of self-report to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is their completion to final restoration. And this is restoration as is written into their certificate of public convenience and necessity, you know, to a certain standard that we would not consider <laughs> final restoration. Um, but they apparently have, you know, met that sort of benchmark for roughly over half of the entire project. What remains are some of the most difficult crossings, this you know, proposal to bore under many of the streams and rivers, um, and then permits that were recently approved in Virginia and West Virginia to allow additional stream and wetland crossings under their 401 water quality permits. So it's segmented um, all along the route wherever they have not been able to cross those water bodies but that type of construction involving bore pits, um, drilling rigs, you know, and working very, very close to those streams, or as I mentioned, in some cases, in, you know, what would be people's groundwater or household water sources is enough reason 
I think, you know, to stop it at this point um, as it has dragged on this time and let people get to the work of restoring the land and protecting those, those last remaining water bodies. Russell Chisholm, isn't it true that they're way behind their deadlines for finishing and way over budget as well? Yes, they're, they've also admitted you know, that it's costing them millions per month to, to sort of maintain the erosion and sediment controls that are in place um, in the work areas now. So, you know, their budget, I think, is probably going to keep, you know, surpassing what they initially proposed for it, roughly into the six, six and a half billion dollar range for what I think was originally proposed around 3.5 billion. So roughly double by the time it's said and done. And, you know, we're seeing different target dates now based on this most recent court ruling of maybe 2023, maybe even 2024. What's your thought about what it will take to kill this thing dead? Direct action, lawsuits, widespread community opposition, something else? Well, I think it takes everything that you just described. Um, the attorneys who took these cases forward you know, on behalf of not just our communities, but everyone downstream from a project like this, they have had success, particularly in the Fourth Circuit, in, in showing how the rules are bent or ignored um, is probably more accurate in order to keep these projects moving forward. Um, for folks who have, you know, resisted in other ways, put their bodies on the line, subjected themselves to the criminal justice system, you know, in some cases with, I think, extremely inappropriate bails or being held prior to trial for, for lengthy periods of time. Again, when there is a favorable court ruling, it vindicates folks who have been willing to resist in, in more direct ways like that. You know, it's hard to, to find the exact formula um, for resisting any kind of project like this. But I, what I know is that, that we have to continue to build this coalition, not just on MVP, but on other projects around Virginia, West Virginia. Um, we have to stop creating uh, sacrifice zones to serve basically corporate interests, to serve profit. And we certainly need leadership from every level where we were promised leadership. Um, the Biden administration, I think, you know, has a role, if not the most important role at this point, to recognize what is happening with the climate and put a stop to additional expansion, you know, through executive action, through declaring a climate emergency, through directing the agencies to apply those standards when they're reviewing permits for projects like MVP, um, and deliver on some of those campaign promises. That was Russell Chisholm, co-chair of the Protect Our Water, Heritage, and Rights, or Power Coalition. Learn more about the campaign to shut down the Mountain Valley Pipeline Project by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellas Falls, Vermont, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.